1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Lawrence Douglas about his excellent new book, The Right Wrong Man, John Demjanjuk and the Last Great Nazi War Crimes Trial, published by Princeton in 2016. Lawrence, hello, and welcome to
0: the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to
1: have you. Um, Professor Douglas, we like to start off these interviews by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'll turn it over to you.
0: So I am a uh, professor at Amherst College, and I'm in a department called Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought. It's a interdisciplinary uh, legal studies department, and uh, my main area is writing about um, international criminal law and also about um, the legal legacy of the Holocaust. Um, I should probably also mention that I also kind of wear a second hat. I'm also a member of the creative writing program at Amherst College because in addition to my kind of uh, more scholarly writings, I've also published a couple of novels.
1: Oh, fascinating. That sounds like fun. <laughs> um, but for the book in hand, um, can you tell us a little bit how you came to write about John Lillianik?
0: So um, I had written a number of years ago, I had written a book um, that was largely focused on uh, the Nuremberg trial and the Eichmann trial. And I've really been fascinated by the way in which, um, uh, jurists and prosecutors have tried to use Holocaust trials as ways of teaching history and ways of teaching history lessons. And uh, even at that time, when I wrote that earlier book about uh, Nuremberg and Eichmann, um, I was very interested in the Damianyuk case uh, because the uh, earlier Damianyuk trial had already taken place in Israel. I mean, his whole legal odyssey, I suppose we'll get a chance to talk about it. It's kind of this bizarre, long legal odyssey. And uh, so I'd even been interested in, at the time of the uh, writing of the earlier book. And then I happened to be a visiting professor at um, the law faculty, the Humboldt University in Berlin in 2009. And 2009 just happened to be the year when uh, Damianuk was deported to uh, Germany from the United States to stand trial for a second time, that is, this is now decades after his earlier Israeli trial. And so, given the fact that I was already in Germany, I was able to uh, arrange to cover the trial for uh, Harper's Magazine, and then I turned that uh, trial reportage for uh, Harper's into uh, The Right Wrong Man, that the book that came out last year.
1: Interesting. And for all our listeners, the book that you were referring to earlier is called The Memory of Judgment, another great book. I highly recommend to the listeners to read that book as well. Um, Can you tell our listeners, um, who mostly may not be familiar with Jem Yanyak what his his early life was um, like and what his wartime experience was?
0: Well, so Dmyanyuk, uh, I'll try to do it since, it, it since his legal odyssey really lasted about 35 years. I'll try to give a pretty brief uh, thumbnail sketch of it. So um, Dmyanyuk, was, uh, he was a native UK- Ukrainian. He was born in uh, 1920. Um, he was uh, drafted into the Soviet Red Army. Uh, then in 1942, was actually taken a prisoner of war by uh, the Germans, by the Wehrmacht. Um, and then, after being taken as a prisoner of war, he was he was like plucked out of this prison of war camp, and he was sent to a SS training camp. And in this SS training camp, he um, he basically was trained to perform what we can describe as kind of auxiliary functions in Nazi genocide. He was trained to serve as a death camp guard. Uh, he did that. Then, after the war, he ended up kind of bouncing around some uh, displaced persons camps. He came to the United States. He uh, immigrated to the United States in 1952. In 1958, he became a U.S. citizen, and he was living this kind of nice, comfortable, uh, middle-class life in suburban Cleveland. Uh, He was working as a machinist for uh, Ford, and uh, he was living quite an unruffled life until the mid-'70s, and this is when American uh, investigators first uh, began to suspect that this – quiet machinist in a a suburban Cleveland had actually had a somewhat more checkered past during the war. Um, They began investigating him, and as a result of these investigations, he was suspected of having been a death camp guard at Treblinka. And not just any death camp guard. He was suspected of being this particularly uh, notorious guard who had earned the nickname of Ivan Grozny, uh, Ivan the Terrible. His born name, uh, Dominic's born name was Ivan. He changed his name to John in 1958 when he um, was already in the United States. Uh, So as a result of this information, the Americans, he was extradited to Israel. And he stood trial as um, Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka. Uh, the prosecution based the case almost entirely on eyewitness testimony. As a result of this eyewitness testimony, uh, he was convicted. He was sentenced to death. Um, had he been executed, it would have been only the second person in um, Israeli history to be executed, the only one ever to be executed in Israel was Adolf Eichmann. Uh, but during the appellate phase of his proceeding, um, after he'd already been convicted, the Israelis realized they got the wrong guy. Uh, They realized that um, he hadn't been Ivan um, the Terrible of Treblinka. This was a a case of mistaken identity. Uh, Ivan the Terrible had been a different Ukrainian named Ivan Marchenko. But the thing that made it into kind of a legal perfect storm was, even though they realized they got the wrong guy, uh, the information wasn't entirely exculpatory. That is, they realized that even if he had never been Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka, uh, he had been Ivan the Not-So-Hot of Mm -hmm. Sobobor. That is, he had been a death camp guard, but just at a completely different uh, death camp. And this then started a whole other set of kind of uh, very elaborate uh, legal proceedings. Uh, Again, I could describe it in some thumbnail sketch, but I'll, I'll give you a opportunity to ask other questions but uh this ultimately resulted in him being uh tried some years later really kind of a number of years later in germany now as ivan of Sobobor rather than uh ivan of treblinka and he was convicted of those charges in 2011
1: yeah can you elaborate a little bit on how they figured out in israel that he was the wrong guy
0: uh yes so um so when he was tried in Israel, his trials started in the late 80s. And uh, the appellate phase didn't really kick in until the early 90s. And that's a very important date because we're talking now about the unraveling of the Soviet Union. And a lot of the information about... Um, Nazi death camp guards and uh, people who had collaborated with the SS, the Eastern Europeans who had collaborated with the SS. Almost all that information was in the hands of the Soviets. And it was been just basically moldering in KGB files. And the Soviets had been very, very uh, reluctant to share any of that information with American investigators or Israeli investigators. But once the Soviet Union started uh, unraveling, uh, suddenly you had really hundreds of thousands of pages of documents now being available for um, Western historians, Western jurists, Western prosecutors, Western defense attorneys for them to explore. And it was only once the Israelis were able to get access to the information did they realize, uh-oh, we got the wrong guy. And this information, again, it made it very clear that uh, Damjaniuk had not been Ivan the Terrible, but it also made very clear that Damjaniuk had, beyond a reasonable doubt, served as a um, guard at Sobobor. Now, the thing about the Israelis, they were then in a very difficult position because they hadn't convicted Damjaniuk as being a Sobobor guard. Uh They had convicted him as being this Treblinka guard. So uh they were confronted with the question as to what to do with him. Acquitted him on the Treblinka charges. They could have retried him on the Civil War charges, but at this point, the whole affair had turned into such kind of like a public relations nightmare for the Israelis that basically what they did is they sent him back to the United States. And um, it, it's a kind of a strange story because he gets back to the United States now. Um, now we're talking about, you know, 1993, he's back in the United States. He gets his citizenship reinstated. He was a naturalized U.S. citizen. He had the citizenship stripped, And then later, he earns the dubious distinction, I'd have to call it, of being the only person in uh, American history to have his citizenship uh, stripped not once, but twice. And uh, the second time is a prelude to his deportation to Germany in 2009. Mm-hmm
1: were was the United States reluctant to take him back after the after the first time the time in Israel?
0: Well, yes, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who you're talking about in the United States. One of the things that happens that also makes this whole case so bizarre is so once the Israelis realize that they have the wrong guy, uh, they also realize that some not necessarily all, but at least some of the American investigators, had already harbored doubts as to whether they had gotten, whether Demyanek had been this Ivan the Terrible. So even at the time that the Americans are extraditing him to Israel to to stand trial under these capital charges, at least some of the American investigators are, wait a second, do we really have the right guy? And once the Israelis realized that some of the Americans had had these doubts, They were absolutely apoplectic. Um, And you even had um, judges in the United States who had evaluated this information, not knowing that some of the prosecutors who were presenting the information had these doubts. Some of these judges were apoplectic as well. And so in the United States, there were certainly some people who thought, oh, you know, this guy has now suffered an injustice. We have to take him back. Then there were other American investigators who said, now, wait a second. We might not have gotten the case exactly right, but he was a death camp guard. We don't want him back in this country. So um, the whole thing became very, very fraught.
1: Right, And obviously the forces that wanted him back won out that time. Right. Could, could you talk a little bit about how his representation in Israel? Was he given Israeli defense attorneys? Were they Americans? Could he afford representation himself?
0: So while he was in, so during this first trial in Israel, the trial that starts in the late 1980s, he was first represented by an American who I have to say was a really, really incompetent lawyer. And this uh, profoundly (laughs) incompetent lawyer um, was actually paid for um, by um, a, travel agent by an American travel agent with with ties to Holocaust denial groups so the whole thing was um, kind of an unsavory um, little story right there this defense lawyer was so bad that the Demyanik family themselves um, became uh, you know very disappointed with his lawyering techniques they ended up firing him midstream and he, then an Israeli took over the defense and this Israeli was, um, he was sort of like a, you know, kind of a real firebrand, like a real maverick and someone who prided himself in kind of sticking a thorn in the side of the uh, Israeli legal system and was very good at like taunting the judges. But I have to say that this Israeli defense lawyer, I, I truly believe that he was astonished to learn that Demyanyuk was actually not Ivan the Terrible. Like I think he was, you know, like many lawyers, they'll engage in zealous defense. But I I think once the information from the Soviet archives came out that the Israelis had the wrong guy, I think defense lawyer was as stunned as everybody else.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. So he gets back to the United States, and I, I presume he goes back to his regular life.
0: Yes, he goes back to suburban Cleveland, and then almost immediately, uh, American prosecutors start these deportation proceedings up all over again because at least uh, some of these prosecutors in this special office um, in the Justice Department called the uh, Office of Special Investigations, um, they very much want mm-hmm. to make sure that Dominic, who they now know beyond a reasonable doubt was a guard at Sobobor, that he doesn't spend the rest of his uh, life um, in, uh, the United States. And one thing I should emphasize is that all along, actually throughout his entire legal odyssey, Demyanyuk's story has always been, I never did anything. Uh, it was always a story that once I was taking, once I was taken as a uh, prisoner of war by the Germans, uh, I just remained in a prisoner of war camp. I remained in a prison of war camp from 1942, basically until the war's end, and uh, so I never was a collaborator in any shape, manner, or form whatsoever.
1: Uh, since you brought and we this, we of
0: course, that was not true. I'm sorry. Uh,
1: no, that's okay. Uh, since you brought this up, I was going to ask you about this a little later, but I'll ask you now: um, Did his defense team, either in Israel or in Germany or both, sort of try to use a, a, the narrative that he himself was a victim? That, you know, he wasn't a guard yeah, by yeah. choice. It was either him or them. Right.
0: right. So certainly that was not brought up in Israel because in Israel, the whole story was that you got the wrong guy. And, you know, the thing that is, of course, the irony is, as I've mentioned, is that I don't think the defense lawyer in Israel even believed that story. But lo and behold, it ended up being true. Um and so, you know, in the case of Dmyanik, always insisting, "Look, I never participated. I never collaborated at all." You know, in always telling this global lie, in Israel at least, he told kind of a local truth. That is, he wasn't ever in Treblinka, and he hadn't been a guard at Treblinka. When it came to try the trial in Germany, so this is now. Now we're jumping all the way forward to the trial that began in 2009, ended in 2011 with his conviction. There, that story of his is not a particularly good story to tell because now prosecutors have really overwhelming evidence that he wasn't so before. It is true that his defense lawyer in, uh, Munich where the trial took place, his defense lawyer, who was a really kind of hot-headed, gigantic, probably about six foot five German defense lawyer named, uh, Bullish Bush. Busch, um one of the defenses that he tried to make was that yes um my client was also a victim he was first a prisoner of war and then he was a uh and then he was forced to uh collaborate but the argument became sort of incoherent because what the uh, defense lawyer tried to do is he tried to basically square that argument with Demianik's with Demianik's insistence that he had never participated at all. So the argument of the defense in Munich went something like this. Um, my client never participated. He never worked as a desk camp guard. But if he had, he was forced into it. And that's sort of a, a little bit of an incoherent argument. You can't say he never did it, but if he did, he was forced into it.
1: And Interesting. Um, since we've moved on to the trial in Munich, I want to ask you, um, to elaborate or talk a little bit about um, the sort of the theatrics of that trial, there, I remember seeing photographs and pictures of of him being wheeled in on gurneys, um, making a big deal out of his poor health, and then other pictures of him walking around looking spry as a chicken. Sort of the media circus that was surrounding this this case was something very unique.
0: Yeah, a- Absolutely. And, you know, I think any time that we're talking about these very high-profile trials, um, you know, we live in a media-saturated world today. We live in an image-saturated world. And so these, you know, very high-profile trials, they become contests, not simply over the material evidence that's being submitted in court, but they also become struggles over images that are being circulated, you know, quite literally around the world. And um, that struggle over the image, the presentation of the trial was very much one of the ways that the defense tried to garner sympathy for Demjanic, um and to present him as a victim was to try to saturate the media with images of this uh, decrepit old man. That is, by the time Dominic stands trial in Germany, uh, he's now 89 years old. Uh, So at the time that he stood trial in Israel, he was a 60-year-old big guy, you know, over six feet tall, about 6'2", heavy, strong guy, and he looked like a strong, powerful figure in his 60s in Israel. By the time he's tried in Germany, there's this attempt to present him as someone who's kind of at death's door, who's now being tortured by the German uh, legal system. So there are these pictures of him on the gurney, uh, seemingly um, in great pain, unable to walk. And as a way of ca- uh, of um, countering those images, the uh, actually Americans, before they deport him to um, Israel, this is Undercover Agents for ICE, for um, Immigration Customs Enforcement. They actually take a video of uh, the 89-year-old Dominic, um walking quite comfortably and climbing into his daughter's automobile. And they then put that um, video online. So it becomes this kind of uh, this very interesting contestation over images, the defense trying to present him as decrepit and um, the state, the, both the Americans and the Germans, saying, well, wait a second, this guy's actually far fitter than um, he's letting on.
1: And I suppose the truth is somewhere in the middle, right?
0: <laughs> well, I, I think the truth was, I mean, I spoke to his doctors in Germany, and uh, the truth was definitely more that he was not nearly as decrepit as he let on early in the trial. In fact, even as the trial went on, he stopped kind of playing, uh, early, very early in the trial. He was really acting as if he was in constant pain, like, like opening his mouth and gripping his forehead. Uh, he stopped doing that pretty quickly. And, um, you know, he was an 89 year old and 89 year olds, you know, invariably have certain health elements. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think it's fair to say that he was certainly competent to stand trial and, um, was not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, a um, you know a suffering or a decrepit physical specimen. So
1: you had the the privilege of actually being there um, in the courtroom. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that probably only you can answer. Um, what was the atmosphere like in the courtroom? Was it was it very s- sort of stoic and serious, or was it more theatrical? Was there excitement behind this trial, or were they just sort of uh, annoyed almost by it? <laughs>
0: It's a great question, Craig, because I think, you know, any time also that you have these, you know, very, very high profile trials, they follow their own kind of, um, you know, uh, internal rhythm. So the beginning of the trial is always this almost kind of carnivalesque atmosphere where, you know, on the first day of the trial, there are hundreds and hundreds of people trying to get into the courtroom. Uh, people had started, um, lining up hours in advance. And in fact, the, the Munich police, um, distinguished themselves in their utter ineptitude in, uh, crowd control. It was really quite shocking at the very beginning of, uh, the very first days of the trial. And, uh, you know, and you have basically journalists from all over the world crowding into the courtroom. Um, and that, that disappears pretty quickly. You know, within a few days, once the trial settles in, and if anyone, you know, actually observed a trial, trials can be pretty tedious. Uh, they can be, um, you know, pretty boring affairs as, um, as the evidence is being presented. And in fact, um, I'll mention one other little fact about German trials. So German trials are not conducted in front of a jury. German trials are basically conducted by professional judges. Uh, there are three professional judges, and then there are basically two lay persons who kind of just sort of are meant to kind of play almost the function of jurors. But they basically just take their instructions from the judges because German trials are are presented are, are basically run by the judges. The judges already sort of like um, they're experts in proof. Um, they are experts in evidence. And they sort of know the case. So at least whatever defects you might say about the American jury system, lawyers have to tell a story to jurors. And that story has to be followable. When the judges are running the show, they understand how the whole story is going to fit together. So they don't have to, in a sense, they're presenting the case to themselves. And so they don't really have to make it followable at all. Which really makes for an observer. It can make the trial incredibly boring. Um, that said, there were certain times in the course of the trial when there were high-profile um, um, people testifying, and then suddenly, what had been an empty courtroom the day before suddenly becomes again swollen with um, with journalists and observers. Uh, so it really kind of followed its own, you know, kind of internal rhythm which was really interesting to see. At some time, these spasms of attention as, you know, journals from all over the world were crowded there. And then other these, these lulls, which were really, you know, at times extraordinarily boring days of court.
1: And so you were here for the whole duration of the trial, correct?
0: Well, no, I, I wasn't there for the entire uh, trial uh, because the trial itself, I mean, one of the things that made it last, the reason it lasts 18 months is because, again, as opposed to an American trial, it's not continuous. So you will have, for example, maybe uh, three days of court one week, and then you could have three weeks with no court dates at all. So basically, um, I was in the rather um, uh, difficult situation of having to shuttle back and forth to uh, Munich. And I was not able then to go to every court day. What I didn't had was I, I, I was able to hire a very, um, a very good um, graduate student in history, someone with a PhD in history, who was able to be my t- note taker when I wasn't physically present in the courtroom.
1: Okay. So, but you were you were there enough? How did you when you were out having dinner or in, in a bar or out in the street interacting with ordinary Germans? Did they? And the trial came up Did they? Was it something that Germans, average Germans were interested in or were they just they didn't, you know, it's just another Holocaust trial or, um, or how did they react to it? Because um, we in the United States, I, I think, there was there was coverage of it. Um, you know, there was general interest of it.
0: Right. So in well, because I was, you know, whenever I would be over there, it was in Munich. And this is where the trial was taking place. And the. Uh, the Munich uh, newspapers, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is, you know, one of the leading um, papers of record in Germany, you know, similar equivalent to like the, the New York Times or more maybe more like the Washington Post. And, um, and the Süddeutsche Zeitung covered the trial very, very closely. And so in Munich, you you really had people, so, you know, cab drivers would talk about the trial. Uh, people in restaurants, as you mentioned, you know, they would talk about the trial. And the thing that was that was interesting is that um, certainly for the people on the street, and maybe this is part of um, the, um, you know, just kind of part of the the culture in contemporary Germany. You never heard anyone really expressing any sympathy for Dmyanuk at all. And you never heard anyone questioning the wisdom of a trying the guy who is 89 years old. Everyone seemed to basically think that it was a good thing to try these collaborators in the Holocaust and that justice, even if um, the wheels of justice turn very, very, very slowly, better to have them turn than not have them turn at all. So I I was kind of surprised by the degree to which I found almost all the people – you know just the the lay people who i had contact with expressing support for um, the prosecution within i also spent a lot of time with lawyers in uh involved in the case and some of these lawyers were um, they tended to be lawyers who were representing um, victims groups that is uh survivors of Sobibor or children of the victims of Sobibor. Uh, these victims groups are able to attach themselves to um, a criminal prosecution in Germany. It's sort of an unusual procedure that we don't really have an analogous um, feature in the American criminal justice system. And uh, these lawyers, they would express, I think, more skepticism about the uh, the way the case was going than would uh, just the people on the streets. That was kind of interesting to see.
1: Well, because there were certainly articles written in the U.S. press that sort of questioned whether um, 89-year-olds should be dragged in front of courts and tried. Um, so I, it, has, it is interesting that you bring up that in Germany they didn't have really any of that doubt. In a, is, is that something you see from studying this more broadly that happens in America where we call into question these kinds of trials?
0: Well, you know, I think any time you start, you know, doing things like trying someone who is, you know, nine years old or so, I mean, you, you do have to ask yourself, you know, what is the point behind the trial? And it's not simply the idea that a 90 year old is being tried. It's also about the amount of time that has elapsed from the commission of the crime to the time of the trial. So by the time that Demyanuk is, um, you know, in the dock in, uh, in Munich, I mean, we're talking about about 70 years of time has passed from the Commission of the Crimes. So, you know, these are certainly questions that um, they're legitimate questions to raise. That said, raising a question is not necessarily the same thing as, you know, then saying there's no purpose in, in having these kind of trials. And in fact, one of the things that, uh, you know, I have to say I harbored my doubts uh, about the wisdom of the trial before I went there. I was really wondering, like, what on earth the German legal system is doing trying this guy, you know, decades after the commission of the crime. And one thing that made me, you know, really quite supportive of what was happening in the German court is that when he was uh, convicted, um, the court, I thought, did something that was quite brilliant. That is, they convicted him, but then they um, they basically released him pending his appeal. And so they convicted him, they gave him a five-year sentence, but then he was released uh, pending appeal. And I thought that was a very kind of smart, Solomonic verdict because it made the symbolic statement of saying, yes, you did these things uh, at the same time that it sort of recognized that there was very little utility to be served putting this guy in prison while the um, the appellate process was running its course. And I should mention that he he died, uh, before the uh, appellate process actually had completed, he died in 2012.
1: Mm. Um, so I'm going to ask you a little bit more of a of a historiographical technical question. Um, so you you make very clear in the book that you know this is a trial by historian, whereas the Eichmann trial was the trial of eyewitness, eyewitness testimony, and the you know the Nuremberg trial was certainly trial by document. Um, the middle of the three is probably the most interesting to for observers. Um, But if you could talk a little bit about what you meant when you said trial by historian and how it's different than other trials, say, Eichmann and and
0: Nuremberg. Right. So um, so certainly the Eichmann trial. So the Eichmann trial, this is a trial that takes place in Jerusalem in 1961. So this is about, you know, a little over 15 years after the um, end of um, the war. And um, Eichmann was you know, basically kind of the logistical mastermind of the deportation of over a million Jews to uh, death camps. And one thing that the, um, the prosecution does at the Eichmann trial is um, they knew that Nuremberg, uh, as you mentioned, was this kind of trial by document. And by that, I mean that the Nuremberg prosecution, they basically, they didn't call a lot of witnesses to the stand. They had seized, the allies had seized really millions of pages of Nazi documentation and they presented the court with these documents and they basically said, we're going to convict these people by the documents that they themselves prepared. That was a, an effective prosecutorial strategy in terms of winning convictions, but it was not a particularly successful strategy in making the trial interesting. In fact. Nuremberg, uh, I think a lot, a lot of people were shocked, uh, observers were shocked to just find out how spectacularly boring this uh, spectacular trial was. And so at the Eichmann trial, the Eichmann prosecutor, um, this guy named uh, Gideon Hausner, he was the Israeli attorney general. He basically said, we're going to prove the charges against the, um, against Eichmann. But we're also going to make this into kind of a living documentation. And we're going to do this by basically telling Holocaust history through the testimony of survivors. And so there were many, many survivors that were um, called to the stand um, at the Eichmann trial. And this strategy was actually incredibly successful. In fact, I think even more successful than the prosecution anticipated. They were really surprised at the degree to which the Eichmann trial... Um, kind of galvanized international attention. Um, it obviously got a lot of attention in Israel, but they were surprised at the degree to which it got attention in the United States and in West Germany. It really became this kind of incredibly important moment of shining um, international attention on uh, the Holocaust. I would say up until that time, the Holocaust was really considered more of a, um, a footnote to the Second World War, a horrible aspect of the uh, Second World War. And then as a result of the Eichmann trial, you find the Holocaust now kind of emerging as you know historians and in the public imagination as no, it wasn't just something that happened as a consequence of the Second World War. It itself was one of maybe the the signature events of the 20th century. When it comes to the trial in Munich, the uh, Dominic trial, um, the strategy that was used at the Eichmann trial uh, is really not available because there basically are no living survivors of Sobibor at the sure. time. At the right. time of the uh, uh, at the time of this trial, there are only I think uh, a handful of survivors Sobibor survivors left on the planet Earth, and moreover, none of these survivors none of these survivors can identify Dmyanek, and so. Instead, the uh, trial, you know, as you mentioned, uh, it turns into this kind of trial by history. That is the most important testimony that is supplied by um, supplied in the Munich courtroom is from professional historians, in particular, this uh, German historian named uh, Dieter Paul. And, it, you know, it kind of made also sort of um, the trial. It gave it kind of a weird... Um, quality to it, at least a, a weird quality to, or I'm sorry, at least a, a weird quality for um, for an academic observer, because it felt like, oh my God, I'm sitting in a lecture hall. Or <laughs> I'm sitting in a historical uh, seminar that this guy is kind of bringing to bear all the important historical information. And uh, he's the one who's kind of uh, supplying the um, necessary background for the prosecution's case
1: um yeah fascinating it's um i guess that is the only option they had had left at that time um because as you mentioned there was no survivors um if you could talk i know he died before his appellate process could be um sort of um, the appellate process could be all the way meted out um what would that process mm-hmm. been like for him and and how would they have gone about it
0: um s- well, it, actually, we we kind of know sort of. So, in his case, the appellate process um, uh, never fully ran its course. But then, in a um, after Demyanik was convicted, um, there have since been two more um, uh, trials of um, of these um, uh, basically SS guards. Uh, he was not an SS guard; he was a collaborator. But then, as a result of the to, as a result of the, uh, basically precedent established in the Demianu case, there were then these, uh, two more trials. And, uh, one of a guy named Oskar Grönig, who's the so-called, uh, bookkeeper of Auschwitz, and then another of, um, this guy, um, Reinhold Hanig. And in the case of Grönig, uh, that appellate process did run its course. And all it really means is that the case is then appealed to the German High Court and the German high court decides whether um, basically the legal theory that was presented in the courtroom, whether that was uh, an acceptable theory. And this is the other thing that's quite, you know, maybe this gets a little bit more uh, technical, but one of the other things that made the Demianuk case um, a very important case was that the German court, embraced a theory that earlier German courts had basically shied away from, had refused to accept. And um and that was a theory that um that we can kind of describe as as one of, of functional guilt, meaning that in earlier trials of um guards, the German courts basically said in order to convict someone even of being an accessory to murder you needed evidence that the guard had committed a hands-on act of killing. Now, if you think about it, in order to convict someone of a hands-on act of killing, you really need eyewitness testimony. You need people coming along and saying, yes, I saw this guard shoot this one particular inmate. And in the case of death camps, it was very difficult to get that information because the sad fact of the matter is these death camps were exceptionally effective. And so that um, jurisprudential profile that you had to have a hands-on act of killing basically meant it was almost impossible to convict these guards as being accessories of murder. And the big uh, breakthrough that takes place in the court room is that the the judges basically decide, no, you don't need that kind of information. Uh, In the case of a pure death camp... If you're able to show, without, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, that um, the guard was a was functioning as a guard at a death camp, then that was enough to show that he was uh, an accessory to murder. Because basically, being an accessory to murder was the job description of these characters.
1: Okay, uh, that's, yeah, that's fascinating because I, I was wondering about that that you know I know that German law has a, an, an extremely high threshold to convict people of murder and accessory to murder. Um, so that yeah, that makes that right. clearer. Um, so you in the book, you talk about how this is the last great Holocaust trial. Um, certainly there aren't many left you know and many perpetrators right. left to be tried. I know that there's somebody a Hungarian or something being tried currently. But what is the legacy in your mind of this trial?
0: So I, I think the most important legacy is kind of um, the idea of um, this notion of functional participation. Because I think all too often, if you kind of go back and you look at the, um, the records of Holocaust trials, um, they very often... The people who are convicted are people who kind of look like sociopaths. They actually kind of—I mean, if you actually think about the the person that Dmyanik was first accused of being, this Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka, Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka um, was really your classic sociopath. He was someone who was, you know, just absolutely sadistic, seemed to take pleasure in um, in uh, being cruel to people. Even in the moments before they were about to die. And I think that provides a very misleading picture of state sponsored atrocity. Obviously, state sponsored atrocity is helped along by these, you know, sadists and sociopaths, but they represent a tiny minority. The overwhelming majority are these basically opportunistic collaborators, um, like Demyanya. And so I think that even though the, decision was very late in coming. It was a really kind of crucial uh, court um, reckoning with the fact that state-sponsored atrocity is really facilitated by, you know, these opportunistic uh, collaborators. And that was really something that no court had successfully um, reckoned with.
1: Um, now, I assume Deb has a, a good-sized family that is still alive. Um are they doing anything to try to rehabilitate his name, their name? Have they, are they, you know, or are they just dropped it? Never to be seen. No, they
0: haven't dropped it. No, 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 no. They they, they certainly haven't dropped it. I mean, I had some one uncomfortable um, moment where I was um, giving a uh, lecture about uh, the book at Case Western Law School in Cleveland. Now, of course, remember, Cleveland is where. (laughs) his family has lived and where he lived for decades and decades and uh, his son was present and uh, one of his uh, defense lawyers um, from an earlier proceeding was present and um, certainly the defense lawyer tried to um, engage in um, uh, you know really tried to take me on and in other um, uh, lectures that have been heckled at times, and by Tymianyk supporters. So, I, I wouldn't say that they have um, they've disappeared in any way. Though at the same time, I don't think you know. I do think they've tried to at least some of the the. I mean, the kids who are now quite old, um, you know, have tried to move on in certain ways. But um, certainly, they haven't moved on in the sense of accepting the uh verdict against the father i mean that never happened
1: i must be tough getting heckled at a, at a lecture about a book
0: <laughs> yes yeah, no it is it's a little uh it's a little uncomfortable even though the audience was was certainly very supportive of me mm.
1: um so well lawrence we've taken up a lot of your time before i let you go we do like to ask one final question um what are you working on now
0: well so i'm working on uh Two projects, Craig. So one project is uh, I'd also done some a reportage for Harper's Magazine about a case which is sort of winding its way to trial at um, the military commission in Guantanamo Bay. That's this case against this um, Nashery, who was the mastermind of the bombing of the USS Cole in uh, the year 2000. He's an Al-Qaeda uh, operative. So um, as that case sort of slowly moves along, uh, I hope to be able to um, uh, write a book about that, though it's moving at a pace no faster than the Mm Damianian case moved. Uh, And then the other thing I'm working on is I'm just kind of working on sort of a more general book about about the development of um, international criminal law in response to um, basically Nazi aggression and Nazi atrocity. And that is called uh, tentatively working title is a jurisprudence of atrocity.
1: Well, that sounds like fascinating projects. And then when the books are finally done, I'd like to have you back so you can talk about them.
0: Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to be back.
1: Um, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. And I also want to thank everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see you all next time.
0: Goodbye. Well, thanks again. Thank (laughs) you very much.